Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 455. Hi and welcome. You have found the Read to Lead podcast. This is the year-end episode, the last episode of 2022, episode number 455. I'm glad you're here. My name is Jeff, and this podcast is designed to help you narrow your reading list and get the key insights and main ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. We've got about a half a dozen on the docket today as I take a look back at my favorite reads of 2022, only one of which I believe actually came out in 2022. These are the books that have really stood out to me and have made a lasting impact on me. Several of those books I'm sharing today have been on my shelf for a while, books that I've wanted to read for some time and have finally gotten around to doing that. It's also important for me to add that with the exception of just one of these books, I've not read the others from cover to cover. Notice I didn't say I haven't finished them. I have, for all intents and purposes, quote unquote, finished them as far as my needs are concerned. That didn't necessarily include reading every single word on every page. It's okay not to be a completist when it comes to books. I find a lot of avid readers are completists. They feel like they have to read a book in its entirety to consider it a read book. I don't believe that to be true. I often suggest to people when it comes to nonfiction, business books in particular, to decide in advance what it is you want to get out of the book. Write that down. What do I want to get out of it? Why am I reading this book in the first place? Then go to the table of contents and determine maybe if there are specific chapters that lend themselves to the thing you said you wanted to accomplish by reading this book and give yourself permission to start with those chapters. And once you've read those chapters, if you've accomplished what you set out to accomplish, what you said you wanted to do before you sat down to read the book, then you can consider that a read book. That's the case again for me for several of the books I'm sharing with you today. The first book I want to touch on is called Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain from Disorder by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He's also the author of uh, The Black Swan. Anti-fragile is a term he coined to describe systems or phenomena that become stronger as a result of exposure to stress, uh, disorder, or volatility. According to Taleb, the concept of fragility is inadequate to describe the full range of responses to stress or disorder. Instead, he introduces the concept of anti-fragility to describe systems that not only withstand stress or disorder, but actually improve or grow stronger as a result of it. He argues that many natural and social systems exhibit anti-fragile properties, including our own bodies, the economy, and societies. His concept has been influential in a variety of fields, including economics, finance, and management, 
and has sparked much debate and discussion among scholars and practitioners. I thought it would be interesting to pull some examples from the book with regard to the human body as a complex and highly adaptable system that exhibits many anti-fragile properties. Like muscles, for example, when they're subjected to stress, like through exercise or, or physical labor, they become stronger as a result. That's because the stress causes small tears in the muscle fibers, which the body then repairs and strengthens in the process. Like muscles, bones also become stronger as a result of stress. When bones are subjected to weight-bearing activity, they adapt and become denser, which makes them more resistant to fractures. The immune system becomes stronger as a result of exposure to pathogens. The human mind is also an anti-fragile system. People who've experienced adversity or trauma in their lives often report that they have become stronger as a result. It's because the experience of overcoming challenges can foster resilience and coping skills that help handle future stressors more effectively. Some of my takeaways from the book, traditional approaches to risk management, which seek to minimize or eliminate risk, as I mentioned earlier, are misguided because they don't take into account the potential benefits of anti-fragile systems. Many natural and social systems exhibit anti-fragile properties. We talked about the human body as an example, but again, also the economy and societies or other examples. He makes the argument that in order to foster anti-fragile systems, it's important to have diversity and redundancy in systems and to avoid centralization and excessive specialization. Who should read a book like Anti-Fragile? Probably professionals, students, and maybe general readers who are interested in the concept of anti-fragile systems. And the book may be particularly relevant for those who work in fields like economics, finance, uh, engineering, and computer science. And it may also be of interest to those who are interested in the broader concept of resilience and how it can be applied to both personal and professional contexts. Finally, my action steps from the book, consider how the systems in your life or work might be made more anti-fragile and identify specific strategies for achieving this. Uh, seek out opportunities to expose yourself to stressors, volatility, randomness, and uncertainty, and practice tolerating and adapting to those challenges. Look for ways to build systems that are more resilient and adaptable rather than relying on top-down control and intervention. I asked myself the question, how did I discover this book exactly? Well, it's been recommended to me over the years by a number of Read to Lead guests, and I finally decided uh, to check it out. It, it's informed, too, some of my work in note-making mastery, the cohort I started back in the spring. I realized a part of note-making mastery was about helping others looking for new ways to think about how to build systems, personal knowledge management systems in this case, that are more resilient and adaptable in the face of, of change and uncertainty. Again, the book is called Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain from Disorder, and it's written by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. The next book I want to look at is about eight years old. It came out in around 2014. It's called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, not to be confused with a similarly titled book called Made to Stick by brothers Chip and Dan Heath in the early 2000s. This again is Make It Stick. The Science of Successful Learning by Peter C. Brown, Henry L. Rodiger III, and Mark A. McDaniel, and it explores the science of learning and how people can learn more effectively. Again, it was working on my note-making mastery cohort that led me to this book, and knowing that I was going to be teaching people what for many were new concepts, I wanted to have a better understanding of science-based learning and how people learn. The book presents a number of evidence-based principles for improving learning and retention, uh, including spacing out study sessions instead of cramming for an exam, let's say. It's more effective to spread out study sessions over time. This helps to reinforce and consolidate learning, leading to better retention. 
uh, mixing up study materials, mixing up different types of materials like practice problems or lectures and readings can help to deepen understanding and improve retention. Uh, testing yourself either through self-quizzing or taking practice exams can help to strengthen learning and promote retention. Uh, something called retrieval practice, retrieving information from memory rather than simply rereading it can also help to strengthen learning and promote retention. And then one of my favorite concepts from the book, Interleaving, it's called Mixing Up Different Types of Problems or Material During Study Sessions Can Help to Improve Learning and Retention as it forces the brain to adapt and switch between different concepts. For example, if a student is preparing for a math exam and wants to practice solving equations, they might interleave their practice by solving a mix of linear equations, quadratic equations, and systems of equations during each study session rather than focusing on just one type of equation at a time. Because the practice of interleaving forces the brain to adapt and switch between different concepts, it can help deepen your understanding and improve your ability to transfer learning to new situations. That, to me, is a very useful skill, especially when you're doing things like personal knowledge management and bringing in new ideas and trying to connect those ideas with existing ideas. Some pretty amazing things can happen. Other examples of, of interleaving, my favorite concept in the book can be things like a, a language learner studying vocabulary from different chapters in a textbook rather than studying, say, one chapter at a time. A musician practicing scales and arpeggios in different keys rather than focusing on just one key. Or a student preparing for a history exam, mixing up their study materials by reading primary source documents, textbook chapters, and review questions rather than focusing on just one type of material. Make It Stick, of course, is a book that would be of interest to students, but also educators and professionals who are interested in improving their learning and retention of new information. That's what drew me to the book. Again, that's Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, came out in 2014. Book number three is a bit unconventional. It's called Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. It's written by Maria Konnikova and came out in 2013. And it explores the ways in which Sherlock Holmes, the fictional detective created, of course, by Arthur Conan Doyle, was able to solve complex problems and make connections that others missed. This was a fun book for me. The author argues that Holmes' success as a detective was due in part to his ability to think creatively and to approach problems with a flexible, open-minded mindset. And she identifies several key cognitive strategies that Holmes used to help him think more effectively, including observation. He was renowned for his ability to observe and notice even the smallest details, which allowed him to gather critical information about the people and events that he encountered. Uh, inference. He was also skilled at making inferences based on the evidence that he gathered, using logical reasoning to draw conclusions about the cases that he was working on. A deduction, no surprise there. He used deductive reasoning to make connections between uh, seemingly unrelated pieces of information, helping him to solve complex mysteries. And empathy, surprisingly. Despite his reputation as a cold, logical thinker, Holmes was also able to put himself in other people's shoes and understand their motivations and actions. Now, the author uses examples from the Sherlock Holmes stories to illustrate these cognitive strategies and suggests that we can apply these same techniques to our own lives to think more creatively and solve problems more effectively. The key points and main themes from the book include the importance of cultivating a curious, open-minded mindset, the value of paying attention to details and using all of your senses to gather information, the usefulness of breaking problems down into smaller parts and approaching them systematically, the need to consider multiple hypotheses and to be open to revisiting your conclusions, the benefit of maintaining a diverse range of knowledge and interests, 
and the power of imagination and visualization in solving problems. Of course, I think fans of Sherlock Holmes' stories would enjoy this book, but also those who are interested in the process of logical and analytical thinking and anyone looking to improve their problem-solving skills. The book is written in the form of a guide, with each chapter focusing on a different aspect of the thinking process used by Sherlock Holmes. Some of my action steps after having read the book include wanting to practice paying more attention to detail and using all my senses to gather information both in my everyday life and when faced with specific problems or challenges, cultivating a more curious and open-minded mindset by seeking out new experiences and exposing myself to diverse perspectives, practicing breaking down problems into smaller parts and approaching them systematically using visualization and imagination to help generate new ideas and solutions. In addition to storytelling and scientific research, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes includes practical exercises and tips for you to put the concepts from the book into practice, it also explores the psychological basis for many of the mental habits and strategies used by Sherlock Holmes and how these habits can be cultivated and developed. Overall, the book offers a unique and engaging approach to improving critical thinking skills and problem-solving abilities. My absolute favorite quote from the book is, is a Sherlock Holmes quote that basically is Sherlock Holmes' description of selective ignorance. And selective ignorance is a topic that we dive deeply into in the Notemaking Mastery cohort. It's about being more careful when it comes to things you consume for learning and growth, being pickier with those kinds of things and and practicing the joy of missing out instead of the fear of missing out. Here's Sherlock Holmes' uh, take on this concept. A fool takes in all the lumber of every sort that comes across so that the knowledge which might be useful to him gets crowded out or at best is jumbled up with a lot of other things so that he has a difficulty in laying his hands upon it. Now, the skillful workman is very careful indeed as to what he takes into his brain attic. I love that term, brain attic. Again, that is all from the book Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, came out in 2013 and was written by Maria Konnikova. For this next book, I have to admit, I started reading it in 2021. I read a couple of chapters, then put it down for a few months before picking it back up again in 2022, at which point... I devoured it. In fact, I've probably taken more notes on this book than just about any other book I've read. It's right up there with The Confident Mind by Dr. Nate Zenser. I think that book, I had like 30 or 40 some pages of notes. I lost count of the number of pages I have on notes from how to take smart notes, funnily enough. The book is by Sonka Ahrens. That's S-O-N-K-E, last name A-H-R-E-N-S. And it provides a comprehensive guide to the Zettelkasten method of note-taking. Zettelkasten is is German for slip box, literally means a card box. It's a system for organizing and synthesizing ideas that involves creating a network of interconnected notes on actual note cards rather than just a collection of unrelated notes. Now, there are digital ways to handle this as well. And we talk about both the analog and digital way to tackle notes using the Zettelkasten system in Note Making Mastery, by the way. This book, more than any other resource, is what informed my thinking on the Zettelkasten method. Aaron's talks about how to create and organize notes, how to make a distinction between temporary and permanent notes, and how to review and update your notes on a regular basis. He also provides examples of how the Zettelkasten method can be applied in a variety of contexts, including for personal productivity, learning, and creative work. Other key takeaways for me include that the Zettelkasten method encourages the use of a hierarchy of notes with 
higher level notes, it's called, summarizing the main ideas and, and lower level notes, providing more detailed information. And that helps ensure that your notes are organized and easy to navigate. As I hinted, the Zettelkasten method also emphasizes the importance of reviewing and updating your notes on a regular basis. Again, this is something we touch on in Note Making Mastery about how you need to have some systems in place and build some habits to checking in on your notes on a regular basis, daily, if not weekly. And this helps to ensure that your notes remain relevant and accurate and helps you to identify areas where you need to learn more. There's quite a bit of history in this book, too, about German sociologist and philosopher Nicholas Luhmann, who's known for his contributions to the field of systems theory and his use of Zettelkasten for organizing and synthesizing his ideas. He wrote, I think it was 58 books in 30 years and hundreds, uh, I think 400 or 700 different articles over his lifetime. Very prolific writer. In fact, there were even seven of his books published after he died, which was made possible because others were able to come in and, and gather his notes uh, so easily and, and turn them into published works. Many of his colleagues joked that they would love to be as prolific in their writing during their lifetimes as, as Lumen was after his death. Lumen credited the Zettelkasten method with helping him to think more deeply about his research and to make connections between different ideas. He argued that the method allowed him to develop his ideas in a more systematic and organized way and helped him to produce high-quality research and writing. The author, Ahrens, suggests that the Zettelkasten method can be used to create an external memory that can supplement and enhance your internal memory. By creating a network of interconnected notes, you can better capture and organize your ideas and more easily access the information you need when you're working on a particular project. This is kind of where the concept of personal knowledge management or a second brain come into being. If you haven't noticed this already, my reading outside of the reading I did for the Read to Lead podcast was very much driven and informed by my desire to take what I had done in my own personal knowledge management journey and teach that to other people, the result being ultimately note-making mastery. My action steps upon reading this included implementing the Zettelkasten method in my own note-taking and organization system, regularly reviewing and updating my notes, and ultimately considering the use of a digital system for my Zettelkasten. I'd certainly recommend that for most people rather than an analog system like uh, Nicholas Lumen used back in his day. And I recommend the book for anybody looking to improve their note-taking and organization skills, including students, professionals, and also anyone interested in boosting their productivity and creativity. Again, the book is called How to Take Smart Notes by Sanka Ahrens. came out in February of 2017. And earlier this year, a new uh, second edition of the book was released. I'm not sure the differences between that version and the version I have, which was the 2017 version. In fact, there may be no differences at all, but when in doubt, go with the most recent version, the version that came out earlier this year. And that's the one that Amazon will generally lead you to if you're making your purchase there. By the way, links to each of these books in the show notes uh, for today's episode, which is readtoleadpodcast.com slash 455. My next book, book number five, is called, speaking of second brain, a term I dropped just a moment ago, maybe you're hearing that for the first time, is a book called Building a Second Brain. It's a book by Tiago Forte that provides a framework for using digital tools and techniques to capture, organize, and synthesize information and ideas. It's based on the idea that the human brain is limited in its ability to store and process information, something that uh, Aaron's talked about in How to Take Smart Notes, and that we can use technology to create a second brain that can supplement and enhance our cognitive capabilities. This book also informed 
uh, many of my ideas around personal knowledge management. The book provides a step-by-step guide to building a second brain, including how to capture and organize information using tools like Evernote and Notion, how to use mind maps and diagrams to visualize and synthesize information, and how to use automation to streamline the process of capturing and organizing information. Forte also discusses the importance of developing a system for reviewing and processing information, just like Aaron's does, in order to ensure that the information captured in your second brain is accurate and relevant. And he provides tips and techniques for using your second brain to improve productivity, learning, and creativity. One of the main principles of building a second brain is the idea of capturing and storing information and ideas as they come to you rather than relying on your memory to retain them. This can be done using tools like note-taking apps, mind mapping software, or a document management system. Organizing and structuring information is another. Building a second brain involves organizing and structuring the information and ideas you capture in a way that makes it easy to find and retrieve later. Many of the same things, in fact, we talk about in the note-making mastery cohort. This can involve the use of folders or tags or other forms of organization to categorize and classify your information. Building a second brain involves using the information and ideas you capture and organize to improve your productivity and creativity. This can involve using the information to generate new ideas, uh, plan projects, or complete tasks more efficiently. And building a second brain is an ongoing process. And as you use your system, you may find ways to refine and improve it to better meet your needs. This can involve experimenting with different tools and techniques and adapting your system as your needs and goals change. Two of my favorite quotes from the book are these. The value of your second brain is in the connection it enables you to make between ideas and experiences. And to build a second brain is to make a commitment to continuous learning, reflection, and creation. It was very important to me years ago to truly wrap my head, my brain around building a personal knowledge management system. That's what a second brain is because I don't want to just read stuff and fill my head with information. We do want to do those things, but we don't want to stop there with the information we take in, whether that's reading books or listening to podcasts like this one or watching a YouTube video or reading an article on the web, whatever it might be. It's not enough just to take in that information. It's also about then taking what you've learned and putting it to use, putting it into practice. And that's what building a personal knowledge management system allows you to do and what building a second brain is all about. And it is the one book I'm featuring today that actually came out this year, back in June, June 14th, 2022. Again, the author is Tiago Forte. The book is called Building a Second Brain. I was originally going to end this list at five books, but there's a sixth book I've got to include. It gets sort of an honorable mention, you might say. Came out in 2010, making it our oldest book on this list. But a book I read this year, and like some of the other books on my list, it is a book I've not read in its entirety, but I have gotten a great deal from. This is also the one book I don't own a physical copy of. My consumption of this book came in the form of Audible. I've listened to this book, mostly while 30,000 feet in the air. I've been doing a lot of traveling in 2022. That book I keep alluding to is called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains by Nicholas Carr. Nicholas is an American writer and journalist who's written extensively on technology and its impact on society. Uh, His best-known book is The Shallows, again published in 2010. But he's also written Utopia is Creepy and Other Provocations and The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. If I were to describe the book in three sentences, I would say that it explores the ways in which the Internet is changing our brains and the way we think. 
and suggests that our reliance on the internet is leading to a shallowing of our intellectual depth and focus. This is actually something that my co-author Jesse Wisniewski and I touch on in the conclusion of our book, Read to Lead. Carr's book argues that the internet is fundamentally changing the way we process information and think about the world, and that this is having significant consequences for our culture and society, and I do not disagree. Some of my favorite quotes from this book include, Once we enter the digital world, we leave our bodies behind, along with most of the other things that give our lives texture and depth. The net is an interruption system, a machine geared to dividing attention. And as we come to rely on computers to mediate our understanding of the world, it is our own intelligence that flattens into artificial intelligence. Ouch. And maybe a double ouch for this next one. Uh, The net's interactivity gives us powerful new tools to finding information, expressing ourselves, and conversing with others. It also turns us into lab rats, constantly pressing levers to get tiny pellets of social or intellectual nourishment. Hmm. The simple but profound key point throughout the book is that the internet is leading to a shallowing of our attention and focus as we're constantly bombarded with information and stimuli from a variety of sources. He cites examples like the decline in deep reading and the rise of skimming as evidence of this trend. And Carr also argues that the internet is leading to a decline in our ability to think deeply and critically as we are more likely to rely on quick, superficial sources of information rather than engaging in thoughtful, reflective thinking. I just stumbled across a couple of other favorite quotes that I didn't mention earlier. Let me let me add those real quick. Uh, what we're experiencing is, in a metaphorical sense, a reversal of the early trajectory of civilization. This, too, is something that Jesse and I talk about in our book. We are evolving from being cultivators of personal knowledge to being hunters and gatherers in the electronic data forest. And the last one I'll share with you is this. What the Internet seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the Internet distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Maybe I'm an outlier, but it doesn't seem that way. Some action steps I'm taking after having read the book is setting limits on the amount of time I spend on the net using tools to block distracting websites or notifications, making a conscious effort to engage in activities that promote deep reflective thinking, like reading long-form articles or, surprise, books, or engaging in activities that require concentration and focus, and seeking out a diverse range of sources and perspectives when seeking information online rather than relying on quick superficial sources. So this book is for anybody interested in the ways in which technology is changing our brains and society, and it's particularly relevant for people who spend a significant amount of time online and want to understand the potential risks and benefits of our increasing reliance on the internet. It's also a good read for those, and this is me, who are interested in exploring the ways in which we process and retain information and the potential consequences of our changing relationship with technology. The Shallows was a best-selling book when it came out and received widespread critical acclaim. It's also been widely discussed and debated with many people agreeing with Carr's arguments, but others pushing back against some of his claims. Again, that's The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, our honorable mention, written by Nicholas Carr. 
Well, I hope you've enjoyed this list of six of my favorite books I read in 2022, not necessarily from 2022. Again, links to each of these books can be found on the show notes page for this episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 455. And something I'm excited to announce to you is that starting today, you can get access to a book summary every single week, including these books and others in the weeks ahead, when you go to jeffbrown.me and sign up to be a part of the Read to Lead community. It's free to do that to get access to the book summaries. There are other aspects of the Read to Lead community that are premium, that are paid things like courses and other things. But by signing up at jeffbrown.me, you can get access to the community, interact with other members of the community, and be notified when those book summaries get released every single week. I've got three or four in there right now just to get you started, including some of the books we looked at today. And again, more added each week as we look ahead. So I encourage you to check that out. Again, it's at jeffbrown.me. Not only do I hope you had a great Christmas, but I hope you had a fantastic 2022 and I wish you nothing but the best in the coming year for 2023. Thanks for listening to the Read to Lead podcast this past year. Hope to see you for the next year and the next episode. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 